you know, uh, I'm very thankful to be part of this church. Uh, last week, the men uh, had a chance to go up to Mount Baker for the men's retreat. I loved our time together. Uh, I personally really enjoyed it, partly because Sunday mornings can be so frantic. Uh, you know, trying to have a deep conversation in 30 seconds flat, it just doesn't work. So uh, it was nice for me just to have extended conversations with guys and feel no pressure uh, of children melting down or anything else. So I just want to say... I was really blessed to see how the Lord's working in the lives of our men, the questions you guys are asking, the things you want and long for. Uh, and that's actually a big encouragement because that tells me the Lord is uh, very much so active and alive and working in our congregation. But the things the Lord began in you, he's actually continuing to do. So that's actually some of what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about regeneration. And that's the theological phrase we use to describe being born again. You may have heard that, that before. So let's uh, read John 2. We're going to start in verse 23, and we're actually going to go up through chapter 3, verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, Moses lifted, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now uh, hungry to be fed from your word, ready to uh, be given your life. Lord, some of us here are tired and discouraged and even uh, miserable, and so we pray for your spirit to come and bring life, to bring new life. Some of us here are joyful and have had delightful weeks, and yet uh, we need your encouragement. 
because when we look at our sin, uh, it's overwhelming sometimes. We pray that you would come and by your spirit, take your word, cut us to the heart, but do this so that we can be healed, so that the wound can be cleaned and we can be mended and made whole. Oh Lord Jesus, we long to be with you, and so we pray you do these things this morning for our sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, while I was in seminary, I was a waiter for about three years, and a lot of this is a heavy learning curve. You have to learn quite a bit. One of the things I had to learn was how to sell wine without actually having tasted it, right? <laughs> uh, they don't necessarily open up the $60 bottles for you. Oh, great, new employee. Uh, so uh, a lot of what I did is I had this phenomenal uh, general manager, his name was Matt McGuire, and a uh, brilliant guy, very wise, and uh, I would basically go and ask Matt, hey Matt, listen, this table wants a bottle of wine, this is what they're eating, what do I do? And he would say, oh okay, make sure you get this Pinot Noir from this Paso Robles or whatever it is, because these, these, and these read it. So I'd go to the table and I'd basically parrot what Matt said, and even with his mannerisms, trying to communicate that there's someone who knows what they're talking about here. Well, most of us can fly under the radar for a while if we know how to uh, use the jargon correctly. Right? You, know, you kind of figure out how to navigate people's expectations, and you can generally kind of navigate where things ought to go. Oh, this Pinot Noir is very approachable, but classic enough to pair well with the dish you chose. That doesn't mean anything, but it sounds like it does, right? <laughs> so I actually began to fake it so well that I actually began to convince myself that I actually did know that that Pinot Noir was worth drinking. But then, of course, you have a few conversations with a few tables and people who actually know what they're talking about, and my confidence began to crumble, right? Uh, I, they actually knew what I wished I knew about. They actually uh, knew what I was talking about. And it wasn't that I lied. I didn't say I'd tasted wines that I hadn't. It's that I began to realize that I'd been playing a game. I'd been playing a game. I thought that if I could just kind of know the rules well enough, know the difference between old world and new world wines and all these different regions, I could make it fly. And for the most part, that's true. But eventually, it just didn't work. So some point, I realized, you know, you're not supposed to pour the bottle all the way. Just FYI, the bottom of the bottle is not good drinking. So proper etiquette says you don't pour that. So I would, as I cleared the table, keep the dregs for myself. <laughs> I'd start tasting the dregs, which they weren't going to drink anyways. And then all of a sudden, I could identify, hey, you know, this is a burgundy. And it's supposed to taste that way. Or this is an odd burgundy. This is a Bordeaux. And you know what? You can really tell because it has these features. And actually, now had this experience of the wine touching my tongue. I knew what it felt like. I knew what, how my mouth felt afterwards. I knew that it went well with this kind of dish because actually it had been in my body. I knew it from the inside. Talking about something is very different from knowing it from the inside. Knowing it with your body. Knowing it with your life. It's entirely possible to be familiar with the things of the Lord and yet not actually know Him at all. It's entirely possible. In fact, uh, if you want examples of this, go read the Old Testament picture of Saul. It's entirely possible to never have our body and our life and our heart shaped by Him, even though we can navigate the jargon and people's expectations very well. Now, the opposite is true as well, just so you know. It's entirely possible to know the Lord very well, 
to have walked with him, to have life with him, and yet have no skill in being able to articulate it. And you don't necessarily navigate other people's expectations very well, but you actually have the Lord's life in you. You know what he's like. You know him from the inside. Well, this difference between knowing from the inside and knowing from the outside, speaking about something versus knowing it, is crucial to this passage here, what we're talking about today. So uh, a lot of this, the difference between only being able to speak about something and actually speaking from within something is this word regeneration. Now I said that's a technical theological word. The Bible does use it. But it's actually what Jesus means when he says born again or born of water and spirit or eternal life. Uh, We could say spiritual rebirth. And all those words are referring to the same thing. So if I spout off a bunch of them, just know we're all talking about the same thing. But I want to think today about what is meditation, well, what is regeneration? Uh, what's the beauty of what Christ has done in us? But I also want to spend time, and we're going to do this first, thinking about Nicodemus' confusion. I want to get to the heart of why he's confused. What's actually happening in his soul and his mind? So I have four points today. First, Regeneration is beyond our natural horizon. Regeneration is beyond our natural horizon. Second, regeneration is for dead people. It's for dead people. Third, regeneration is an act of the Spirit. And fourth, regeneration is accomplished by Jesus' exaltation on the cross. So, beyond our natural horizon, it's for dead people, act of the Spirit, accomplished by Jesus on the cross. So first off, it's beyond our natural horizon. You know, I think for most of us, when I say, I'm a born-again Christian, uh, we have a sense that when I'm talking to someone who's not in the Christian world, all they hear is, I'm a blah, 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 blah Christian, right? There's a bunch of jargon that we're throwing around, and in fact, it usually sounds kind of like empty religious talk or some sort of overly sentimental way of describing something that's happened in our life when in fact there's a perfectly scientifically uh, accurate way to describe the phenomenon that we call being born again. This is kind of the way that, at least many conversations I've had, uh, describe conversion. You used to be a meth addict? Great! Well, congratulations on your reformed life. You clearly came to understand the error in your ways and decided to pursue health. Congratulations. You can call it born again, whatever. You were mean and selfish? Well, congratulations on growing up a bit and becoming a mature adult citizen. Uh, You want to call it rebirth? I guess so. If that's just the Christian language for turning your life around. I don't know if you've experienced this, but the sense that I get when talking to non-Christians when I use this word is, how can spiritual rebirth be possible? How is it not just you got your ducks in a row? Well, actually, what I want to say is that Nicodemus is asking the same questions here. All right, look at verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Do you want him to climb back into his mother's womb? It's ridiculous. Well, now, Nicodemus is actually right here. It is absurd to expect someone to go through the birth process again. That's crazy. He's absolutely right about that. But as right as he is about the impossibility of actually being born from your mother again, that doesn't actually answer the question of what Jesus is talking about. 
right? Nicodemus has been able to describe how absurd what Jesus is saying, but he doesn't actually understand it still. He hasn't shown uh, that he understands. Now, it's tempting to start bashing Nicodemus for not getting it. And I don't know, maybe some of you have been in churches where Nicodemus is this vile person because he's a Pharisee, and how dare him ask these questions. But actually, what I want to say is that um, I don't, I don't want to do that. First off, every person in the Gospel of John doesn't understand Jesus unless they were like the lowest of the low, right? The blind guy who gets healed, he's the one who really gets it. But even the disciples, they misunderstand Jesus almost up until the very end. So we probably shouldn't be too harsh on Nicodemus. In fact, I think that actually Nicodemus is a good example to us here in some ways. Here's why. Here's what I mean. He is no worse than the, dis- than the disciples who simply display their ignorance by asking questions. What this means is that it's actually okay to be confused about who Jesus is. So long as you are willing to keep coming to him and keep asking questions, keep thinking, keep receiving what he's saying. You know, uh, children, there's a lot of people here who want you to know the Lord, right? People are serious about you knowing the Lord, about you being reborn, having God's life in you. But what this means is that it's good for you and it's good for all the adults in the congregation for you to ask really serious questions of them. What do you actually mean? What are you actually talking about? We want you to understand. And it's your job to keep us honest and ask us good questions, okay? All right. So, you know, the other thing to say is that actually with Nicodemus, by the end of the Gospel of John, uh, in chapter 7 you see him defending Jesus, and in chapter 19 you see him spending a ton of wealth to give Jesus an honorable burial. So something between chapter 3 and 19 has changed in Nicodemus. That should tell us that asking questions is a good thing. This is, in fact, a value for our life together as a church. We ought to be ready to receive people's questions, even if it's clear they don't get it. Because you know what? We didn't get it either. So, why doesn't Nicodemus get it? That's really what I'm after here. Why doesn't Nicodemus understand what Jesus is talking about? Look at verse 9. He asks Jesus, How can these things be? His question here is no longer seeking to understand what Jesus means, but actually trying to weigh and discern whether what he's saying is true. Right? He's evaluating now, and the problem is not that he's evaluating, but that he's evaluating, thinking about what he's saying according to his own standard of measurement. He's thinking according to his own authority. You know... uh, When he asks, how can this be? He's basically saying, given the way I currently know all things are, how are what you're saying, how is what you are saying possible? You know, he began coming to Jesus. Jesus, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because of all these reasons. Then he comes to Jesus and says, listen, I know what we're talking about and what you're saying is impossible. What you're saying is crazy. Now this is actually kind of like saying, Because I know that I can only see as far as Mount Baker and I can only see as far as the San Juan Islands, that that's all that there is, (laughs) right? That the limit of what's possible in the world is my own certainty about it. 
That is to say that my natural horizon is the limit of what's possible. That's what Nicodemus is saying. I know what's possible. This is outside the pale. You know, we know this is crazy to say that. None of us would actually say that because we've been taught and flown, flown enough planes and so on. But point of fact is that actually our posture many times, especially in uh, broader Bellingham culture, is that our certainty about things is the measure of whether or not they're true. We are the measure of whether or not things are true. And I find this in conversations with all sorts of folks, whether we're talking about evolution and creation or the possibility of salvation and life and eternal life in Jesus. I find that uh, people struggle at this very point, and it's a legitimate point. So what I'm saying this morning is that we actually need to be patient and humble towards people because we have all been taught to, to look at things rather than look along things. So turn to page three in your bulletin. I've included a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is one of the few times you'll find me quoting Lewis. I just somehow can't get around to him very often, but Nate loves him. So, This is a great uh, little uh, article of his. It's called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And I've given you the first part of this passage. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light and the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, but not seeing things by it. Then I moved, so that the beam fell on my eyes, and instantly the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed, and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the regular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking at the beam and looking along the beam are very different experiences. He continues to go on to give examples of the difference between knowing what it is to be in love and the psychologist's description of love. And he says this, As soon as you've grasped this simple distinction, it raises a question. You get one experience of a thing when you're looking along it and another when you look at it. So which is the true and valid experience? Which tells you the most about the thing? And you can hardly ask that question without noticing that for the last 50 years, probably 120 years now, everyone has taken the answer for granted. It has been assumed without discussion that if you want the true account of religion, you must go not to religious people, but to anthropologists. If you want the true account of sexual love, you must not go to lovers, but to psychologists. That if you want to understand some ideology, such as medieval chivalry or 19th, 19th century idea of a gentleman, you must not listen to those who lived inside it, but to sociologists. The people who look at things have had it all their own way. The people who look along things have simply been browbeaten. It has even come to be taken for granted that the external account of a thing somehow refutes or debunks the account given from the inside. What I'm saying 
is that although we might be able to describe some facets of the Christian life in kind of a sociological, psychological manner, that never actually gets down to the core of it, does it? We're still insisting that looking at the thing is better than looking along it. But it turns out that actually in all of our life, we've learned to look along things first. And that actually, we depend on looking along things. None of us would enjoy our relationships if we simply insisted on describing them as psychological aspects of our bonding needs. There's no relationship. So the question we have to ask with all tenderness and humility, those who think being a Christian is no more than some social club with strange religious rules is, what makes you so sure your perspective is the true one? How do you know you are not simply unable to grasp what it is to be born again? Because it's simply beyond your horizon. If you know the story of physics and what happened between Newton and Einstein, if we were to insist on Newtonian physics dogmatically, Einstein would have looked like a fool. And this is, in fact, exactly what Jesus is concerned about with Nicodemus. He says that people in their natural state cannot see the kingdom of God. They're unable. And this is our second point. Regeneration is for dead people. Now, Jesus doesn't explicitly say... Truly, truly, regeneration is for dead people. But he certainly implies it in talking about the kind of life that we get by being brought into him. And he says three things, actually, about our natural state. The way that we're just born into the world. He says that we can't receive his testimony, that we can't follow his spirit, and we can't produce life. All right, we'll just do those quickly. First off, we're intellectually incapable of receiving his testimony. Look at verse 11. Jesus says to Nicodemus, we speak about the things we know and have borne witness to, but you don't receive it. And again, in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see, that's a knowing word, the kingdom of God. This means that actually uh, you have to be made new to receive Jesus' testimony. You have to be given an entirely new way of seeing things. Sin, it turns out, doesn't just affect our behavior, right? It's not simply a list of things we ought not to do. Sin affects even our ability to understand and perceive the truth. That's a wild thing. But Jesus is telling us this morning, and John actually gives Nicodemus as an example of those who are open to Jesus and love Jesus because of the signs, but because he's not been born again, just can't get his head around it. He also says that we're incapable of wanting where his spirit leads. Right? Look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus says that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, and it's this way with everyone who is born of the spirit. That is to say that the person who has been born again follows the spirit wherever he leads which is to say that the Spirit is leading places that when I'm in my natural state, my biological life, just as is, I can't begin to follow there. Last thing he says is that we are incapable in our natural state of eternal life. Right? In verse 15 he says that he will give eternal life. Now Jesus doesn't mean that our natural state is bad or that the amazing act of childbirth is not wonderful and good. In fact, 
He honors those things in many other places. But what he does say is that uh, while those of us who are outside of Jesus, unbelievers, do have joy, and we do have some fulfillment, and there is some mercy in our lives, those things have an end to them. They're temporary. And in fact, they're often just occasional. That in fact, what constantly comes around like a sick joke and empties all those things is death. Jesus says that actually what defines you most as a person is your end, your goal, the thing towards which you are going. And what he says here is that if you have not been born of the Spirit, what defines you most is death. Death. This is uh, what Christians have called systematic depravity or total depravity. That we can't want God because all that surrounds us, all of our good things in life are actually going towards death. And we just can't produce the kind of life we need. We can't make ourselves want God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, uh, the mindset in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. The flesh cannot please God. So just for you Christians, just so you know, what this means is that you ought to understand that God made you able to believe. That's how you came to know the Lord. God actually came and made you alive by His Spirit, and that's how you began to believe. It wasn't because of some genius of your own. God was seeking you out. You know, one big takeaway uh, that I want to get from this is something that uh, Michaela Wadhams said this last week. Michael was talking to me, and uh, we were talking about this passage, and he said, you know, it's like Michaela said the other day, uh, Daddy, you have to be a sinner to be saved by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, eight-year-olds understand this quite well. You have to be willing to admit that you are dead apart from Jesus for there to be hope of having his life. And this is our third point. Regeneration is an act of the Spirit. So we've talked about who it's for and why we don't understand it, but now we have to ask, what is regeneration? What are we actually getting at? What are we talking about? So regeneration is an act of the Spirit. You know, the first thing to say in this is that uh, regeneration is eternal life being planted in you. I'll say that again. Eternal life being planted in you by the Spirit. Look at verse 3. Jesus has uh, this beautiful little phrase to describe this. He says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is to say that just in the same way that you came into biological life by forces and powers and energies and relationships that you did not create, that now you've kind of been thrust into this biological life, actually, the Holy Spirit, by an entirely different principle, by an entirely different power and energy, has now thrust you into a whole new realm of spiritual life, of life with Christ. That is to say that there's a new life that cannot be touched by death that's living inside of you. Now you can also translate this same word again as from above. You were born from above. That is to say that you have heaven's life itself coming down and living inside of you. If that seems abstract, John tells us another image in his uh, letter, 1 John. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. God's seed. 
So children, do you know what this means? It means you're like a garden, right? Anyone have a garden at home? Any kids garden at home? We just finally got our garden up and running, right? You are like a garden. There's lots of things growing in your garden. Ours had a lot of weeds and horsetails and other things. But what happens is that uh, your garden is generally full of the things you love. Think about all the plants in your garden like the things you love. And then God comes along and he puts this seed into you. Right? Buries it deep, covers it up, waters it. What happens? Does that seed come up right away? Sometimes. Usually not. Usually it takes a little while. But then what happens? It begins to grow. It begins to push and expand and make space for itself in your garden. Right? And after it's grown for a while, year by year, steadily, it begins to push more and more of the weeds out of your garden. It begins to choke out the weeds. You know, I like to think of a dandelion and an apple tree. Can a dandelion kill an apple tree? Kids, can a dandelion kill an apple tree? You don't seem convinced. I don't believe you. Can a dandelion kill an apple tree? No, it cannot. No way. Let's try that again. Can a dandelion kill an apple tree? No. All right, thank you. That's better. Sometimes I like to think of God's Spirit being like an apple tree growing in me. That actually, over the years... The Lord is slowly cultivating it. And year by year, steadily, it's growing. And in fact, at the right time, the Lord will have sweet apples, sweet fruit. Not just for me, but for other people. That He will actually begin to produce good things just by His Spirit living in me. I wonder if that's what He's doing in some of you this morning. Maybe it's more like a Douglas fir. A big monstrous tower making the whole ground beneath it sloped and pushing and making a whole grove of trees so that nothing but a few bits of grass can grow there. And all the birds of the air can come and rest in its branches. You see, this is the picture of God's eternal life being planted in you. This is regeneration. Growing like a tree. This means that if you are baptized, this is what God intends to do in you. Kids, if you've been baptized, if you belong to Jesus, this is what God is doing in you. He is growing this eternal life tree of His Spirit in you, day by day. So that, what that means is that when He starts pushing things around in your heart, don't resist Him. He's bringing life into your body, into your soul. Now, what this means is that our eternal life in Christ is unstopping, unfailing. It will not give up. It cannot be overcome, though our sins are over our head many days. I know uh, many of you get discouraged because you don't grow in grace. You don't see the Lord changing you as quickly as you'd like. But you need to know, first off, that the Lord's patient. But second off, that He has not given up. No matter how great and how heavy your sins are, the Lord will not fail. We who are once dead in our sins, God has made alive with Christ. Now the other image of regeneration is that it's birth into a family. It's passive birth. None of us picked our families. Some of us might actually want to change our families, but tough luck, right? Your mom and dad and your sisters and brothers are the family you get. What it means to be born again is actually be born into a new family. In fact... 
John tells us in chapter 1 that we are made children of God when we're born again. What this means is that the local church is, guess what? Your new spiritual family. The person in front of you, the person behind you, the person to your right, and the person that you know you ought to greet but have a hard time getting over that hump, right? They are God's gifts to you in your regeneration. That is to say that you can't have life in Christ, you can't be part of his new spiritual family without being part of the family, actually belonging to the family, living with the family, loving and pouring yourself out for and being poured into by that family. In fact, that's God's whole program. I want my people to be in this family. You have to see that God wants you to love all these people dearly and deeply. Now, the other thing that Jesus says is that the Spirit does it. And I'll, I'll move this quickly, but uh, verse 8, you know, Jesus' emphasis there in terms of the Spirit going where he wants is that it's a mysterious thing. That the Spirit comes and does this in a mysterious way. That is to say that you nece can't necessarily produce it. You can't manufacture it. You know, I'll just tell you, I grew up in the church and uh, did not understand the gospel. Likely not through the fault of my church, but for whatever reason. And it wasn't until my parents separated and started heading for divorce that I finally turned to the Lord. Let me just say that. That's a strange thing. In most cases, when someone goes through some sort of significant family trauma, the immediate response is to reject the Lord, to harden yourself. Why did I turn to the Lord? Why did I ask for mercy? I have no idea. Other than that, the Lord was working in me already. I think actually that all of you know exactly what I'm talking about if this has happened to you. Why did I turn to the Lord? I don't even know. But the Lord was there in dealing with me. You know, the other thing he says is that it happens in an earthly way. That these are earthly things. Jesus says in verse 12 that Nicodemus ought to understand these things because they are earthly. That means to say that uh, you and I don't need to have some transcendent experience on a mountain to understand what rebirth is. You don't have to transcend to some other plane and have some uh, fantastic vision to be reborn. In fact... What you need is God's Spirit to come and invade your life in the day-in, day-out routine. That's actually where spiritual rebirth happens. But the other thing is that uh, Jesus actually gives a physical means for this. I don't know if you noticed that in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. Right? He repeats almost every word he says in verse 3, but he says it again differently. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. What he means is that spiritual rebirth, regeneration, happens by the Spirit through our baptism. That's what the word water means. We are born of water. That your regeneration is actually served by your baptism. Now, baptism doesn't make you regenerate right there and then but that God actually intends to work through it. The Spirit does the work. That is to say, for all of you who have been baptized, regeneration, being born again, is the right consequence, the fullness of your baptism, working itself out. So, real quick, 
how do I know I'm regenerate? How do I actually know that I've been born again? Anyone entertain this question at all? Uh, I think if we're honest, all of us have at some point. How do I actually know that this is true of me? Let me just ask you a few questions. When the Spirit blows, are you willing to follow Him? That's one of the indicators Jesus gives us. When we talk about sin, do you feel it? Does it weigh on you? When we talk about the Lord, do you long to hear more? All those, if you can answer yes, even in the slightest, are indications that God is actively working in your soul. That you, in fact, do belong to Him. But what if you actually answered no to all those questions? What if you've been baptized, and when I ask you, does the Lord speak to you in the Scriptures, or does the Lord uh, convict you of things, do you long to know Him? And you say, actually, I don't. Let me just say, that's a serious issue. That's a serious issue, and you must take it seriously because you must seek Jesus because He has promised you this new life. Don't feel ashamed about it, but turn to Jesus. And in fact, this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus to do. You can see that Jesus doesn't shame Nicodemus for having questions so much as not receiving his testimony, not believing and pursuing. So this is our fourth point. We need to look to Jesus, that regeneration is accomplished by the death and exaltation of Christ on the cross. This is from verses 14 and 15. Uh, You know... Jesus refers to Numbers 21 here, uh, where he talks about Moses lifting up the serpent, and I'll try and go this quick. But the story is that the people of Israel have been saved from slavery, right? And God has uh, redeemed them from the iron furnace, and God's marching them towards the promised land by day and night, leading them with a cloud and a fire with him in his presence. And they begin to say, Why have you brought us out here to kill us? What are you doing? Do you want us just to die in the desert? Is that why you saved us? And they begin to have a hard heart towards the Lord. They begin to reject him to say, actually, your salvation stinks. We don't want it. So God actually disciplines them. He sends these fiery serpents, these snakes, and they start biting people, and people start dying through the venom. It's a pretty serious moment. People of God has saved, start rejecting him. There's some discipline involved. But then Moses prays and asks for the Lord to be merciful. And the Lord provides a way for them to be healed. And it's interesting. The Lord doesn't just say, they're healed. He has Moses make this bronze little serpent and put it up on a pole, bind it to a pole, and lift it up. And everyone who looked at that serpent would be healed. So now there's this pole marching along with Israel, right, as they're marching through the desert. That's an image not only of God's healing, but of their sin as well. It's a physical reminder that they have rejected the Lord and yet that He has provided a way for them to be healed, for them to continue with Him as His people. Jesus says He has to be lifted up in the same way. What He means is is that He has to be lifted up on the cross. But it's weird that He calls it lifting up. Anyone ever wonder about this? What's the deal with Jesus calling the cross lifting up? Lifting up means you're rescued, you're saved, you're exalted, you're honored, right? God comes and shows up for you. And Jesus says, God's going to show up for me on the cross when I am 
publicly executed, mocked as a criminal, rejected by my closest friends, shown before everyone as a fraud, trampled on by the Roman government. That is my lifting up. What's going on here? What's this about? Well, do you remember the difference between looking along and looking at? We can describe the cross by looking at it, but we never will understand it until we look along it. That is to say that what's really happening, to get to the core of what's happening on the cross, is to realize that in Jesus dying as a criminal, he is taking our place as criminals. In the Son of God taking on death, he is taking the death that wants to find us. and making all of those things that darken us and give us sorrow and despair powerless. Death died when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, so that when Jesus rose and had life, it was life that couldn't be touched by sin, couldn't be touched by death, and that is the life that Jesus is putting in us this morning. That's actually the life that Jesus has for us. One very practical application as we close. You know, if the Spirit is free, like a king, to do what he wants, to blow where he wills and to lead you where he wants, the question for us who are in Jesus, who have been born again, is if we're willing to go with him. What I want to say is that he can push and drive you to places you don't want to go. This could mean geographical changes in location, giving up what's comfortable and stable so you can serve your new family, the church, and be trained to serve them. It could be social moves, befriending those who you know actually have no social standing, or maybe uh, ruining your reputation in the office by making sure you spend time with those people everyone hates. It could be emotional moves, actually finally admitting that you've resisted the Lord through your sin, and have resisted him pushing in to certain corners in your life. I just want to say that each one of these moves is actually part of his lifting you up. If Jesus is lifted up by taking on the cross and by being humiliated, what that should tell us is that the way to glory is not up. First, it's down. First, it's being humbled. And the glory, the lifting up the Lord intends for us is when he will exalt us. And in fact, brothers and sisters, this is his very promise. If you humble yourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. He will give you his new life. Let me pray. Lord, oftentimes we feel like a dry and uh, weary land, parched, thirsty. Would you pour out your Spirit on us? Pour out the living water of your Spirit and give us satisfaction, give us fulfillment. We long to drink of the living water of your Spirit. Lord, for those of us who know you, we pray that you would refresh us and renew us. For those of us who are here who don't know you, we pray that you would even now be stirring in their hearts, giving them new life, changing them, giving them new desires, peeling back the hard, cold layers and putting your spirit in them. 
Lord, you promised to do these things, and so we give you praise, and we long for you to show up. In Jesus' name, amen.